superstar Thai actor model Tony Rockan headlines this striking debut feature from Korean-American writer-director Josh Kim. As the now-grown oat, he recalls his childhood experience of trying to rescue his gay older brother, Ek, from being drafted into the military as Ek grapples with his with the gritty reality of life in Bangkok, working at a bar for male hustlers and sex workers. He also has found love with a more privileged boyfriend, Jai. When the moment of truth arrives with the draft lottery for these 21-year-olds who must draw either black or a red slip to possibly be conscripted into the armed forces. And hence the setup, the premise for the film How to Win at Checkers Every Time. We're joined today by the writer and the director of the film, Josh Kim. Josh, welcome to Film School. Um, hi, Mike. Thanks for um, inviting, me, for inviting me on. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, this very nice story, uh, for a lot of reasons, story and film, um, there are some terrific performances in it. We'll get into that and as we progress in our conversation. But the story itself um, is um, a reflective, uh, nuanced look at the relationship between these two brothers, uh, Oat and Ek, and Ek, pardon me, and um, and the circumstances that they find themselves. They're in poverty. So it, I like all of, there's a lot of different levels to the film in the characters and the way it plays out. Tell me a little bit about the inspiration for How to Win at Checkers Every Time. Right. Um, even though it was originally from a book, friends who watch the film, they say, oh, my, this is your story. This is kind of like, um, and a lot of like film friends, they know that like one of the first films are used to the most personal ones. Sometimes they tell about the, you know, the filmmaker writes about something that he remembers from his childhood. And I felt like this was almost my childhood film. And um, and the reason I felt that way is because when I read one of the short stories from the book of um, uh, one of the, from, the, from the book called um, Sightseeing by Rhino of Let's Out of One's Up, uh, one of the short stories was this one between two brothers, and the younger brother would ask the older brother, "Hey, where are you going? Take me with you. Can I go?" And I used to always <laughs> ask my older brother my that question, and, uh, but he never took me with him. So. Mm-hmm. This is almost a, like a what if, what if my older brother took me out on a night with his friends? What would it have been, or been like? Because um, I have an older brother who is nine years older. Mm-hmm. So that was the original inspiration for the film. Um, I read the book of short stories, and even though it's set in Thailand, I felt like I knew the characters. I felt like, you know, these are friends that I grew up with in Texas. Um, this is like my older brother. This is like my, you know, parents, my aunt. So I felt the characters he wrote were really compelling. And then I just kind of cold called the publisher. I just turned the book over, and it was on, like, Grove Atlantic Press. And so I called them. I found their number on the Internet, and they were really nice. They said, oh, yeah, actually, the rights are available. Here's his agent. And uh, they put me in touch with the agent. And then over a couple of months, we just, you know, negotiated a contract. And, yeah, that's how it got started. Now, I don't often get an opportunity to talk with a director about the property that you've, you came to the rights of. So I'm curious, is the writer, well, I'm sorry, his name was, and I won't even try to pronounce his name, the writer of Sightseeing. What's his name again? Uh, Roderwood. Roderwood. Um, or actually his friends just call, call him A. A. Okay, A. So it, is he part of sort of a vetting? Does he? Did you talk with him about what you what your intentions were? Is that part of the negotiations in, in, in when you acquired this property? 
I think, to be honest, in the beginning, it was all through his agent, mm -hmm. but he had to approve of each one. So it was a little bit tough, not tough, but it was just long mm -hmm. because, you know, not only did he, like, his agent have to approve every kind of like term, but he had to approve as well. But I, actually, it, it wasn't. Um, I mean, this is my third property, property, no, the second one, and I just did not, I just acquired another property and um, optioned another property. But uh, I think it's different every time. Mm -hmm. um, the first one that I worked on was with a Korean company, and this is the first time I had felt like, oh, okay, I, I, I had gone through the process. It was, um, it was a, I worked for a Korean film company that remade a John, a 1986 John Woo film called A Better Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge property to you know, acquire, and we had to get like not only John, Mr. Wu's permission, we had to meet with him and get you know, his producers on board. So that was really tough, but. Um, I give me, and to be honest, and it just has to deal with money sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's not like we, I paid a lot of money. I think I offered only five thousand dollars for mm -hmm. the uh, like a two-year option, just initially for a short film. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think I don't know. I, I think as long as the property, no one has kind of talked about it. Yeah, I think. Oh, what I realized as well is that it, um, short stories are a lot more easier to acquire than like novels. You know, they're not really on the radar. Right. And, you know, novels, you know, because novels, you already have a full film there. And all you have to do is kind of like decide what to kind of like, you know, take out. Yeah, exactly. But short stories, you know, the ones that are acquired were like eight pages, 20 pages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so okay. one thing I like about short stories as a filmmaker is that I can still add my own story in it and still feel like it's mine. Right. Um. Well, it's interesting. I, I just don't. It's not a subject that comes up very often in in my conversations with filmmakers, uh, but it is it, for a lot of uh, people doing producers. Obviously, are dealing with this on a regular basis. But um, I'm just kind of curious. It's a, it's an interesting aspect of the filmmaking process that uh, doesn't get discussed a lot. But I imagine, as you said, with a short film or short story. There isn't probably on the part of the author not an expectation that it will be turned into a feature-length film, so I'm sure there's a lot in, of interest in in that and um, you know how how that's being t handled. But uh, and then you, of course, as you said, it, it, with with the uh, sightseeing, you you and you brought to, to uh, your own story into the the uh, the premise of the story itself of sightseeing. So um, it's a nice blend. Uh, and and uh, it's uh, yeah. well. Let's get into this. Okay, so basically we laid out the story of of, of how Oat is is he looks up to his older brother, and 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 obviously is trying to um, be seen as as someone who was not a maybe not a peer, but certainly someone who he can confide in, etc. There's a lot of a lot of things he's a lot of things that Ode is trying to accomplish in this film. Talk about that that relationship. What were you hoping to sort of extract from Ode and from Mech and their relationships and their dynamics? Um, you know, actually in the, the title of the film How to Win a Checkers every time. Mm -hmm. And Checkers wasn't originally part of the short story. there was no mention of Checkers, but it was something that I would I would see in Thailand. These motorcycle taxi drivers, you know, while they're waiting, they would play checkers or chess, like on these uh, on these wooden benches, and they had drawn in like a uh, checkers board on these wooden benches. And I, every day I would see these, and then I just had an idea, and it reminded me when I was younger, because um, I think one of the dynamics 
of um, I think in the, when the, in the very beginning we're like, okay, so this is kind of a coming race story. His older brother has to kind of teach, you know, his younger brother, mm-hmm. you know, things, about things in life. And I remember one of the things my older brother taught me was how to play chess. And um, mm-hmm. I learned that, you know, at a very young age how to play chess. But ever since I was young, I was always like, I'm going to beat my older brother. <laughs> and I would always joke and I would say, I'm going to beat you this time. I'm going to beat you. And, you know, sometimes they kind of, uh, you know, he just kind of like looking, watching TV or something and not really paying attention. And then suddenly there's a moment he's like, oh, shit, you know, like, uh he realizes that I'm like, I'm about to beat him, and I think I remember that moment when I first beat him. It's like really exciting, yeah. and then but the next feeling you have is kind of like, oh, what? I just you know what's next, right. you know? Right. Um, and then you start to realize not not just your brother, but you know your parents too. You, when you're young, you have so many questions, and you realize they don't know everything. Yeah. And then um, that's when you kind of have to. It's kind of scary, but you have to kind of realize you have to you know make your own path in life. So yeah. you want to to look at that in this movie. I, you know, I, you just said something that I, I, I completely relate to and understand in that, um, well, by the way, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Josh Kim, and he is the director and writer of the film How to Win at Checkers Every Time, and it's now available on Video on Demand, and it's also available on DVD uh, as as we speak and um, and as you're hearing this. And the website for the film, How to Win at Checkers, is... Go ahead. I uh, winatcheckers.com. Winatcheckers.com. Sorry, I thought I had it in front of me, but I didn't. There it is. Winatcheckers.com. And uh, you can so you can check out the film and, and the availability of it, but it's on video on demand and, and uh, as well as uh, DVD. And I would assume... Well, yeah, there, there you go. You can see it. Is it an iTunes available yet, or... Mm-hmm. It's oh. on iTunes, okay. on Vimeo, okay, and Wolf, Wolf on Demand. Great. All right. Um, so uh, you just said something that I relate to, which is the moment when it you see a sibling and or a parent. I mean, this is another sort of step in, in, in a relationship is when you, you see them as not just your mom or dad or your brother, but you see them as just another person. And that is a whole nother dimension to the relationship that it's unexpected and, it, and it's also fraught with all kinds of different, as you said, different emotions, different things you bring to it and navigating that in a way that you can maintain some of the relationship you had as a sibling, but at the same time begin to see each other as peers. And that is, I, for me, that's really what uh, Oat is looking for and and in, and and so is Eck. He's looking to mentor his his brother in this in this film as well. Um, that so uh, yeah. And I think you did a very very good job of of navigating that that particular relationship. Um, in the film, Eck has has a is in a relationship with a um, Chai, and they have been together for quite some time. Now Chai comes from apparently a more privileged, more of a a wealthier uh, family. Um, talk about that relationship and what you were hoping to accomplish with that in in the film. Yeah. Um, so this was originally from the short story. In the short story, there were not um, they were not lovers. They were just best friends. And uh, actually, to be honest, this, the original for the longest time we didn't know what to call the film, and we called it Draft Day after the short story. Um, and draft uh, when you turn 21 in Thailand, all males have to line up for a military uh, lottery to see whether you go 
uh, next two years to the military or not. And um, so originally, that the the author had actually he was studying in Cornell, and his mom told me that uh, he she called him back to Thailand because he had to. It was he was turning 21, and he had to go through this draft. So there, everyone was really worried because if he actually picked like immediately, I mean, like in two weeks, mm-hmm. he has to go. You know, stop his studies at Cornell. And then go uh, to the draft, serve two years in the military. So they're, uh, oh, what should we do? So um, he actually went to the draft, and then when he was there, he was, he, you know, he wrote the story. And um, originally, it was two best friends, but after, um, but I changed it to um, lovers because I felt that, you know, just story-wise, with two, if you know, if it's two best friends lying, mm-hmm. then it's like one thing. But if it's like, if it's like a lover that you're lying to, I think the feeling of betrayal can be more stronger mm-hmm. later on. Mm-hmm. So we changed it to lovers, and um, later on after you saw the movie, he said, that's so funny that you changed it to lovers, because when I wrote it, I wrote it in a very humble, erotic way, and um, we laughed about that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and essentially it is a, uh, it's, you know, it's a good way to show class, the different classes. Um, and I think the aunt, later on, she, you know, she tells, she tells the, um, older brother, I don't care who you're dating, just don't date him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the classic. Is that is that a strong is that a strong component of of Thai society? Is is that something that is is true to the sort of the cultural norms within Thailand? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I would say so. I, yeah. I think it's coming more into you know a long time ago when there was like I think there's two things that are kind of facilitating this. Not, not mix of cultures, but before there was like farmers, and when you lived, if you're poor and you lived in the countryside, you mm-hmm. didn't really see the rich. You know, you didn't really have a lot of you know interactions with the rich. Mm-hmm. But I think it's one is urbanization that's bringing poor people from the countryside, you know, onto the streets of Bangkok, and then the second one is you know on the internet. Um, you know, everyone has Facebook. I'm friends with like the Seven Eleven cashier in Thailand, <laughs> and um, like you can. See, you can see, you know, everyone has his phone, like, and everyone has Facebook, and you can. It's very easy to compare lives. So, I think um, this is kind of a problem right now in Thailand because when you have before, when there was like the separate, you know, the separation between the rich and the poor, mm-hmm. and you didn't really see it as much in your face, it was like less of it. It was like you know less of an issue, but now like some some of the poor people, poor people from rural areas get more angry about stuff, and so this is one of the reasons. It's like a political problem in Thailand. Yeah, there has been um, a, a number of stories about uh, some very yes political. Um, well, it does. It sounds class based. It's a, there. I know there's a. Well, we won't get into all that. We don't need to get into all that. But I exactly have. There's been more of that of late, and I and it's interesting because I, it's some um, the the uh, blessing and the bane of of our abil- ability to be in communication with thousands of people in in an instant is uh that it there's all kinds of different pluses and minuses to to this new found uh village that we find ourselves in and that's interesting that uh, but but definitely navigating these issues of rich and poor i think is something that the whole world is grappling with uh, the class, the class system. Um, certainly, we're finding <laughs> we're in our political process here in America. We're hearing a lot about that. Um, I want I want to get into um, the in the film uh, Eck and and 
and Jai have a, uh, as you said, they're lovers. Uh, and there's Kitty, who is, I, um, for much of the film, assumed one thing and turned out not to be the case. But uh, in terms of her sexual, um, which, how she was sexually, I guess, was, I don't even, I'm not saying that right, but you know what I'm saying. So she's transgender or pre, help me out with Kitty. Well, how would you say it? I'm, 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 I'm standing uh, yeah, okay. Kitty is a uh, pre-op transgender. Yeah. Uh, like a lot of, uh, you know, transgender friends that I met you know, during this process, in the three years I lived in Thailand, they're actually quite confident. They are quite strong. strong. And, um, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. So I wanted to portray kind of the friends that I have, um, you know, met in, uh, known in Thailand. Mm-hmm. And um, originally there was a transgender character called Kitty from the book. And uh, she was one of the only ones in the book. She actually has to go up and draw. And this was um, draw for the lottery, and because she was born as male, mm-hmm. so I I was like, I asked friends, is this really true? Did um, do transgenders really have to draw? And this is three years ago when I first moved there, and a lot of them gave me different answers. Some said, oh, I don't know, I, I didn't go because I I bribed my way out. A lot of friends said that, so I was mm. like, um, what should I? You know, I, I I guess I have to go see this myself. So I did a short documentary called Draft Day, following two transgender girls the day they go to the draft. And what I realized later on was that the rules, the laws had changed so quickly a long time ago. People did have to, um, if you drew red, they did have to draw, and if they drew red, they had to cut their hair and go to the army. There's, mm-hmm. like, no exception. Mm-hmm. And then, like, now the laws have changed where it's, like, you know, as long as you get, like, a doctor's note and then you come back for inspection, you know, mm-hmm. then, you know, you can get a waiver. But then um, there was, a, like, an in-between period when it was, like, okay, you didn't have to go, but you... On your permanent record, it was written that you were kind of like mentally unstable or mentally insane. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard for transgenders to get jobs because, like, cause you, every male has to show this document when they apply for a job. <laughs> They're just like, you know, comment, oh, yeah, she's actually mentally insane. Wow. It's going to be quite difficult for people to get jobs. Well, here in America. So now they remove that. Right. Well, here in America, for, I mean, up until what, the 70s or even into the 80s. Homosexuality was considered a mental disorder, so it's not un, it's not un, it's not not that unheard of that a, a countries around the world you know there's the same sort of challenges for people who are in that in the when they in that situation right so uh, and, and by the way Kitty's character is quite dynamic quite quite an interesting and and really in many ways kind of uh, some comic relief she brings a a little a, some levity to the film in terms of just her her character. Her performance as well. Uh, every uh, she was quite good. Every everyone in this film is really uh, very good. Um, uh, the casting was. Tell me a little bit about casting. Uh, you we referred to in in our um, uh, opening of Tony Rakane uh, uh as the uh, older Oat who appears in the film. Um, but it, was that a key get for you in terms of getting? Well, tell me a little bit about that. It sounds like he's uh, Tony's quite a. Uh, quite a catch to have gotten for the for the film in terms of casting. Right, I think uh, from the beginning, um, actually, I didn't know about him, but people uh, and the other team cast. I had, we had a really good casting director, and so for two weeks, you know, we saw like you know forty twenty to forty people every day, and um, so so during that time period, she was like, okay, um, we we're also like you know, looking at Tony, and then, I mean, um, we were also casting for you know. 
uh, his role with, you know, just regular call-ins. And then she kind of showed me a YouTube video and said, hey, you know, what do you think about him? And I was like, okay, let's, you know, let's try to get a meeting. And she got that meeting. But he was really busy, and it was in between, like, gigs. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had to, we met him at a mall, you know, it's like, at, at, you know, one of those open-air cafes. Mm-hmm. It was quite loud. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to audition? You know, I kind of, and so I, I actually brought my voice, uh, a video, a voice recorder. Uh, and I said, you know, your voice kind of carries the film because you kind of narrate the film. So do you mind if you just kind of read a couple lines? And so he read a couple lines towards the end of the film. And he said, oh, oh my God, I have goosebumps. And he said, I'll do it. And then the, the manager was so surprised. He was like, no, no, no. Uh, he didn't, we didn't read the script yet. <laughs> and then he said, no, no, no. And he said, and he said, no, no I'll, I'll do it. And then so we started talking. Uh, and it was just like in the over a period of 10 minutes because he, he, you know, he had to go off to another event. But, yeah, I think those were the, that was one of, the, one of the times when we were like, oh, wow, you know, we got someone like really great. And um, everybody else is pretty new. So, you know, except for the, the transgender singer at the bar, she was, um, uh, that was also really nice uh, to get. Mm-hmm. Um, Well-known, is that what you're the, saying, at the, the singer in the bar? Yeah. Okay. I, I think besides him, the three other well-known people, but it was because of, you know, I think the story and the Tony, you know, it did help to have uh, it, does, someone well-known on board. Does that help with financing? Does it, did, did, was there, did you already have financing when you were casting, or was this part of uh, kind of going after money? You've got a, a, a high-profile name attached to the project. Was that... Yeah, actually, it didn't help with financing because um, we had already had financing, okay. and we already had a budget. So he, 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 you know, his fee was a bit higher than what we were kind of like um, budgeting, and so it was it was kind of like a kind of discussion we had to have. Like, is it really worth have, <laughs> have, um, paying for this guy? You know, is to have it in the film. So mm. it actually it wasn't. It didn't help with financing. Mm-hmm. But what it did help later on was press when we did the. Um, we're speaking with Josh Kim. Uh, he's the director of How to Win at Checkers Every Time. Uh, film is available um, on video on demand and DVD, and that video on demand includes iTunes and Vimeo uh, and other platforms. So go, you can go to uh, winningatcheckers.com and find out more about the film and screenings and, and, and those kinds of things. Find out where you can where you can check it out. Uh, obviously, ca- uh, casting Oat was a, is an important uh, get for your film. The, obviously, both Eck and Oat are important. Um, what sort of background did uh, Oat's, Oat have? In, or the, I'm sorry, the actor who, I'm sorry, the actor who played Oat. Uh, what was the, the background? Yeah. Um, I think he had done, like, um, commercials. Like I, I like while we were casting, I, I was I rode an elevator and then I saw a KFC commercial. I was like, oh, I know that guy. And but just really small stuff. There was nothing that I could watch and be and judge his quality. It was just through audition. And he was actually the first person that came in. And um, I think as a director, I didn't really like films when you watch it and it's like a you know child actor or child character, and then they have to cry and it's fake. And I I told the casting director, whoever comes in, the guy that we the little kid that we choose, he has to like cry on demand. Like he has to be there emotionally when we when we need it. And he came in and uh, he's, he we did the we did one of the hardest scenes, an emotional scene, and he he nailed it. And then I was like, oh, I think I was like, wow, that's so easy. I think he's the one. <laughs> but um, it turned out later. I mean, the producers were like, no, you saw one boy. Like you need to uh, 
we keep looking. <laughs> and then, um, but we did, and then I, I realized it was quite difficult to get, you know, kids to even cry. But the one, there's like, you know, there's only a couple others who could. And then when he did, it was like a different kind of cry. It was like an angry, like an angry cry. Or, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so, <laughs> so I mean, there was, you know, there's a couple of times that he cries in the movie, and he, he did this all really well. So we went back to him. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, he's terrific. And then X character, was, did you, who, who did you cast first? Who was the first person for the film that you, you cast? Actually, the little boy. Okay, um, I would think. Because X character was actually the last person we cast because he, I didn't realize how hard it was. To, um, I, I this is my first feature film, so I thought, oh, you just cast the best person, but it's no, you had to cast. You know, it's like matching is the most difficult thing, and his character has to be like a good older brother, mm-hmm. has to be a good boyfriend, has to be a good nephew, has to be like a good friend, he has to be strong enough to actually stick up to like this, you know, mafia boss. Mm-hmm his son and you know there are so many people who are like a great brother but not a good boyfriend or like a really sexy lover but not a great brother mm. you know so you know i think it, um, it was quite difficult but we mentioned found um, him so well let, let's name let's give names to these the the actual names to the actors here I, and for fear of me butchering it horribly i'm going to let you go ahead and say oats uh, real name and then also Eck as well Okay. Every, everyone in Thailand has nicknames, so we call them by the nickname. Uh-huh. Uh, Oates' nickname is um, Ryu, R-Y-U. Ryu. Yeah. And then um, uh, X, the older brother, is played uh, by um, uh, U-M-M. Um, well, well, let's give their name for anyone. Maybe they're listening, and they, they, might, oh, want okay. to, <laughs> they might want us to actually give them a name here. So go ahead on, on uh, Oates. Yep, the older brother's name is Tira Chutiku. Okay. And the younger brother, Ingarat. Ingarat, I actually don't know how to say his last name. Okay. Yeah. There. It's a. I. I had a. I have a friend who's a Thai, and uh, I'm to this day still, uh, you know, sheepish about trying to pronounce his last name. So, understandable. Understandable. Uh, uh, well, um, now you said a first feature film. Um, financing. It sounds like you had that. You was this a. Was this an outsource? I mean, a uh, crowdsource? Did you do any of that, or did you have financing from from a source? Actually, I did do crowdsource. I tried. I, I, I did Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And this is after a year of um, being in Thailand and rewriting the script, and I did a Kickstarter, but um, got like thirty thousand dollars, but we didn't reach our goal. Okay. And um, you know, with Kickstarter, it's all or nothing. So that's actually quite depressing because when you fail on Kickstarter, you fail very publicly. Mm. So, yeah. but I think one of the good things about that doing a Kickstarter was that it actually brought a lot of attention, whether it was like, you know, good and bad, but, you know, among the people that saw it, they're like, you know what, even though you didn't get it, we'll, we'll, we'll help you out. And I was like, oh, you're going to give me money? They're like, no. They're like, but we'll find people who, you know, who mm. want to, you know, who have money and want to help. So it was actually, uh, it took another year. Mm-hmm. So it was actually two years to prepare for the project to finance it. But, um, yeah, after that year, eventually it was just, like, friends and friends of friends. Okay. Um, and I think what really helped was um, just shooting the documentary, the short documentary that was almost like a proof of concept. Because I think people, in, actually, in Thailand, when I first went, they were like, who's this guy? You know, he doesn't even speak Thai, and he wants to make a movie in Thai. But I think it was once I made the documentary, and then people were like, okay, yeah, I think he can do it. So. Yeah, that's excellent. That, that's great. Right. 
I want to get into that in a, in a minute, but I want to ask you how many did you have any time um, rehearsal time for for the cast, especially with Eck and and Oak? Did you have time to to get the sort of that dynamic kind of um, refined the way you would like? Um, actually, I, we did it during the auditions, like um, mm-hmm. during it was two week auditions. Mm-hmm. Initially, the producers were like, oh, "You don't have to be in the audition room. You have a lot of other things to do." And so they were going to put a camera in there, and we did record every one. But I realized, oh, no, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll watch them. And I think it really helped because um, I did a lot of rewriting in the auditions. Because mm-hmm. even if you have a really great actor and he says, like, the, you know, line's not working, you can realize, you, you know, like, oh, the writing's bad, it's not the acting. Mm-hmm. And so um, I actually, every day we, we kind of, like, 20 people would come in and they would they would you'd say the script and then at the end of the day we would change it. They were like, actually, this time wasn't working, let's rewrite it. And so every day we would have a new script for the, all the actors and um, I think that really, really helped. And so we actually, during that time, the auditions, we called the little boy and back three or four times mm-hmm. with the older brother. And I think just during those, and we, we rehearsed most of the important scenes and just during those with the older brother, um, really helped because by the time they came on set they knew what were they you know they're like we got this so actually uh on the set was actually quite easy but it was just a pre-production that was quite difficult well that took a little more work that sounds that's not i've heard i hear that quite a bit really especially when you've got a uh you're on a tight budget and having people ready to go and and you know dialed into the dynamic of a, of their scenes their relationship etc huge advantage uh, you, you just don't have the time to uh, go over a lot of takes, I imagine. How many days did you shoot um, on this? We shot 20 days. I think either 19 plus one or 20 plus one. Wow. Um, That's yeah. fast. That's fast because there's a lot. Since I wanted to make 21. There's a lot going on. You got a lot. It looks like a lot of setups here in the film. So. Yeah, the most difficult one was the uh, the draft. There's like a lot of extras, like 150, 200. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we had like an extra camera and that was the first time using an extra camera mm-hmm. and uh, at the beginning the extra camera shots were not that great to be camera shots and I was like what is wrong and then I realized there was this dynamic where like um, the the camera A which is like the main cameraman he's kind of like the boss right and so he kind of tells camera B okay you go shoot this um, you get this angle but then the camera B you know he'll go to the area but and try to get the angle but he's still you know, it doesn't. It doesn't have the freedom to actually, you know, um, get the best angle he actually wants, mm-hmm. which might be actually the better angle. So actually, I, uh, first kind of first few setups on during the draft, the camera B was like, I was like, what is he doing? So eventually, I realized I had to be with camera B. So I would just go go to camera B and kind of direct him um, manually. But otherwise, if I was just sitting in front of the monitors, he would not feel like uh, right. Mm-hmm. He would kind of listen to the camera A uh, cameraman. So, wow! Because by the time you already trust camera, you already know it, you, already, you already know his angles, and you know what he knows what you want. But his camera B that's just on there for like a day or two that doesn't know your kind of sensibility. So um, that's one lesson I learned about how using multiple cameras. Yeah, and it, it looks good. The, the film looks good as well. Um, so um, it's you know cinematographer and casting are the I think we're you know we're talking about the in my opinion the two of the most important things and the fact that you. You know, it is got to be one of those things that until you hear your words come out of the mouths of the actors, 
you don't know exactly how it's going to play. So what you're talking about, sort of refining the script, you know, kind of as you were going along, I think that's an important thing. I think filmmakers probably learn that the hard way on the set often, and uh, it, you know, you may not always have that uh, the luxury of being able to do that. But it sounds like you you got the right sort of approach to uh, to what you were trying to accomplish by uh, by being flexible enough to accept okay that didn't sound very good it sounded better in my head than it does when they say it out loud so that's uh that i mean that's a good lesson to be passed along to other filmmakers as well Mm -hmm. um let let me ask you uh in terms of two things as we wrap up because we we (laughs) um the the idea of uh gay lesbian transgender stories in in uh thailand i assume now how the film been released in thailand sounds like it has been yep it was um yeah released in in, in july and and did well you happy with the with the with sort of the feedback that you got from the audience in in thailand yeah we were actually quite nervous because um i was Korean american i was on thai we were wondering what the reaction was going to be and actually during the press screening i sat through it and it was like quiet, like silent, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And I was like, "I was watching my film like fall apart." Yeah. And I, I was like, "Oh my god, this is the worst training ever!" ever. No one's laughing at the jokes, you know. But that night, um, like the top, the, the three reviews, three reviews came out that night immediately, and they all said best type film of the year. Oh wow! And you know, more tired than many other type films. And eventually, it was nominated. It was a uh, it was Oscar selection for. Thailand, mm-hmm. and also they sent it for the Golden Globes as well for best feature, uh, best foreign film. So we did get a lot of support um, in Thailand. And your question was about the LGBT, you know, um, yeah. films. There's actually in the same month that we released, there were two other LGBT films, and we're all friends with each other, the directors. So we had to coordinate. Okay, I, you know, Josh, you released this week, and then, um, you know. You released this week, and then so we didn't all release on the same weekend, um, because a lot of um, there's you know there's a niche market in Thailand, and a lot of the LGBT films are kind of like lower budget, so that, that, you know that's it's very easy to recruit you know low budget LGBT films in Thailand. In terms of content, um, I think this is one of the first times, not one of the first, but it's one of the times people that remember that people remember that it is a film where the sexuality wasn't an issue. And this is actually, you know, people watch the film and they say, oh, well, Thailand's so open about LGBT issues. And, um, you know, I can go there if I'm gay and or trans and just get accepted. And actually, that's not the case. A lot of my friends, you know, are not out to their parents. But um, what we wanted to do was we wanted to create a world that, you know, show people what could be possible. It didn't really exist at this time, but it showed people what could be possible. So that's what, from the very beginning, we said um, sexuality is not going to be a point of conflict in the film because you know, there's a lot more important issues in this world, like inequality or other things, corruption, that um, we should spend more t- time on. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and the, the sexuality uh, in the film is not overplayed. It, it's, a, it's just, it, it's very understated even in terms of, uh, of the relationship between uh, Jai and, um, Jai and, uh, and Ek. So... To that extent, I mean, it's 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 not hidden in any way. It's 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 certainly you know right up. It's part of the story, but it, it's a it flows naturally with with what the story is 
pushing along in terms of the storyline. So there's so um, I'm just curious if if that yeah. So it sounds like there is a evolving situation, if you will, evolving perception in in Thailand about uh, gay and lesbian and transgender uh, issues in films. Right. I think one one criteria that we applied, you know, every line of dialogue to or every situation to was if he was dating a girl, would this be normal? Like, what would happen if he was dating a girl? What would the younger brother say, and how would they react? Right. So that was um, that was the main criteria. Right. Uh, we're speaking with Josh Kim. He's the writer and director of the film "How to Win at Checkers" every time, and it's available on in uh, DVD as DVD as well as video on demand, including iTunes and other other platforms. And I once again want to say the. The uh, the website is how to win at checkers, how to win at checkers, dot com, and uh, finally, no, win at win at checkers dot com. A win at check. That's why I said that earlier. Now I told okay. Win at checkers dot com. Now on Wolf Video, uh, the distri- the the distributor. Uh, there I'm looking at a link. So that was what I uh, their link, and I apologize. So um, last thing. Your first feature film, uh, Korean American, born in Texas, now reside in Korea. Uh, so it, it has that is that giving you is giving you a, a way of sort of filtering your artistic sensibilities and able to interpret it in in be culturally sort of sensitive and understanding of the different cultures. Now you you've sort of spent time. Certainly, as an American, uh, and now you're in Korea, and now you're writing. You've done a, a, a film with uh, a, a Thai actors and, and a story. Is that sort of? Do you feel like you're sort of adaptable in some way? That something about your life story that has allowed you to be able to kind of understand cultures and 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 the nuances of them. I guess if I had to think about it. Um there is there there are a lot of times in the film where you know there's some foreign cultural concept mm-hmm. like releasing fish for good karma mm-hmm. and um, a lot of Thai films you know a lot of it has to be finding the right balance between over explaining something mm-hmm. to where like you know people in Thailand are going to be like I don't need to know that you know or mm-hmm. you know not explaining enough or foreign audiences don't, you know just kind of like just passes over them. So I think it did help in some ways to find the balance to explain, you know, the cultural customs. Um, actually, during the, one of the Q and A's when we first released in Thailand, someone asked, um, "Why should Thai? Can you tell the audience why should Thai people watch a film, a Thai film made by Korean Americans?" And um, I said, "Wow, okay. Um, uh, I live in Korea right now, but uh, when Korean when friends come visit." me in Korea, actually I really enjoy it because, um, and if it's the first time because I can see Korea through their eyes as if it was like my first time and I remember my first reactions to everything oh, my, and so they would take you know, pictures of you know, streets, random you know, streets or trees and I would be like these are trees or streets that I pass every day and um, I was like, what are you doing? and they're like, it's so beautiful and I'm like, oh yeah it is and I kind of <laughs> forget um, sometimes you know, how after living in the country so long, you know how beautiful things are, how strange things are. I live in a, I live in Gangnam, which if I walk, you know, two minutes outside, there's a street of just plastic surgery signs, 
And I, I didn't even notice it until like um, one of my friends came and visited and said, wow, what are all these signs? And like, there's so many, and I was like, oh yeah. So you can also remember, you know, how weird or how strange the country is. Um, so I think this kind of, I mean, this foreign perspective to a Thai story, um, I mean, I think it did touch on subjects. And I think I wasn't afraid to talk about some other things that people in Thailand might have been afraid to talk about, like something like the military or military corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was even talk that a film was going to be banned when we arranged in Thailand. Eventually we made some cuts and submitted to censorship. But, yeah. There's there's hints of what you're, of corruption. It's not something that, yeah, is explored very deeply in the film, but it's it's touched upon in the film. So, yeah, yeah I can see that. Um, well, I uh, congratulations on uh, how to win at checkers every time, uh, and uh, look forward to your your future work. Uh, and are you working now? Do you have something kind of in the in the works now? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just adapting another um, short story. Okay. Uh, this is from China, but I'm adapting it to English language, so I'm working on that right now. It's um it's been a year, but I. I think one thing I realized with this film was kind of taking it slow and making sure the script, you know, is good first really helps out later on, you know, exponentially when you're shooting and when you're editing. So yeah. I'm going to take it in this next one slow as well. Very good. <laughs> Just uh, make sure the script is good first. Well, well, thank you, uh, Josh, for coming on. Um, uh, really appreciate it. Really enjoyed your film. And uh, once again, for our listeners, um, How to Win at Checkers Every Time. Uh, and you can go to winatcheckers.com to find out more about the film. It's available on VOD. It's also available through um, Wolf Video, a dis- the distributor, uh, for people who want to find out about that, and that's at wolfvideo.com. You can find out more about it as well. And um, the film, again, How to Win at Checkers Every Time. Josh Kim, writer-director, thank you so much for being on Film School. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.